Uh, I was born in a small town called Masjid Suleiman in southern Iran. I was born in Syria. I was born in Hamburg, Germany. I was born in Congo. I was born in Tanzania in a refugee camp. I was born in Singapore. Guatemala City. I'm from Ireland. I was born in Thailand refugee camp. I was camp. born in Mumbai. India. I was born in Vientiane, Laos. I was born in England. I was born in Costa Rica. Welcome to Many Roads to Hear, bringing the voices of immigrants, refugees, and asylum seekers to a national conversation about migration and identity. I'm your host, Caitlin Dwyer. Today, we hear the voice of Divine Arambana. Her desire to get an education in the worst of circumstances led to a life of giving back. In Burundi culture, it's unusual for a mother to name her baby, especially both first and last name. But Divine's mother knew she just had days to live. I'm your host, Deegan Larkin, and we start on Divine's birthday in a Tanzanian refugee camp where her mother had found refuge from a genocide. In my, in my culture, at least in my family culture, the father usually names all the kids. All my siblings were named by my father, and they all start with J's, except me. My name is Divine. My mother knew she was not going to survive because she had, you know, pro- uh, health problems and the doctors could not save her because we had lack of medication and lack of resources. The doctors had told her, there's nothing we can do. We don't have any medication for, to save your life. Uh, so she knew she was not going to be there to raise me. So she said, I want to name her. So she chose to name me Divine, uh, which I absolutely love and my name it's something that's the only thing I have from her that I remember from her I mean we're forever have from her also Irambona which again it means God sees me so I'm so grateful that she chose to name me. Divine's parents had fled their home in Burundi at different times and in different directions. A second war between the Hutu majority and Tutsi engulfed the country in 1993 Her father, a well-educated engineer, was a Hutu, and her mother, Tutsi. Her parents had found each other again in Kanawha, a refugee camp in Tanzania. But their time together as a family was brief. Clutching a screaming, motherless newborn, minutes after his wife died, her father began to struggle. So did Divine. He eventually gave me to this other lady to nurse me uh, because she had just had a baby too. He's like, can you please nurse my, my daughter too? And then so she nursed me for a while and then I end up getting really sick that my stomach expanded so much that you can see my veins all over my stomach. So I ended up drinking cow milk my entire life uh, when I was young. And that's when the mom he finally met was able to take care of me. She went miles and miles looking for medicine. They took me to the doctor, nothing they could do. They, they actually told her that I was going to die. There's nothing they could do. But she was like, she's not dying. I will do whatever it takes to, to save her, her life. I owe her my entire life, to be honest. I love that woman. <laughs> yeah, she never treated us any different. That woman became Divine's stepmother. And with the marriage, her father started piecing their life back together, growing his family with more children and starting a housing business. The family prospered, but safety was not guaranteed. 
the joys of playing with friends during the day faded into shouts, sobs, and violence in the night. Divine was 11 years old when she first relied on instincts to save her life. Every night, there was always some kind of a shooting gun, especially when people see that you are rich or, you know, you have money, you have some kind of business. So they would always get jealous and try to kill you and your family. And so one one night, I my, actually it was my first time learning how to, how to cook. <laughs> so everyone was just enjoying themselves. My sister and my little brothers, they were doing their uh, homework. And I was in the kitchen excited to cook for the first time. There was two entrances to the house. Um, then, and we had a security guard that was, you know, staying up watching over the house. My dad was on the phone. Um, the security guard saw the people with guns, and he came to warn my my father. And my father was on the phone, you know, didn't really care. So the the security guard came and grabbed the phone and dropped the phone, and it's like, you need to run. <laughs> You, you, you're about to die if you don't run. And my father just took off and left the, you know, the family behind. So I, I overheard the, uh, what the security guard was telling my father. So, and then I went and ran to warn my siblings because I was in, uh, in the kitchen next to the entrance door. Uh, I went to warn my my siblings. You guys need to hide. I just heard that there's you know people coming to to rob us and they have guns. And so everyone went to hide. And my mom overheard my, my voice and she was she was pregnant at that time. And so she went to hide um, under lots of clothes. And so they came in and I was hiding behind the door in the living room. Uh, there was other people, you know standing by the door where I was hiding and with the guns pointing at us or the kids. So they said, give us the money or this entire family is going to die. We have a bomb. And that's when my mom came out and she was like, please don't hurt my kids. My dad still had the money with with him. So he took off with the money. But luckily we had other small business, two other small businesses that my parent had. So she gave all the money that we had from those two businesses and gave them to, to them. But then they're like, no, it's not enough. So I was like, oh, okay. So, but then I actually was able to escape. I went through their legs and no one hurt me. And I knew where they were coming from. I was actually pretty smart for my age. I knew where they were coming from. So I took the opposite door where they came in because I figured that there was going to be more people surrounding the entire house, which was true. So I took the other door where... If you open, actually, it makes a lot of noise if you don't know how to open it. So I was like, I don't care. I'm just going to open really quick and run. And then there was other neighbor that was also kind of rich, too. And I was like, if I go there, there's probably going to be the same situation that's happening home. So I figured, why don't I go to the, our neighbor that don't have enough so I went there, and then they opened the door. And because my family helped so many people, you know, they provided jobs for them. The moment they heard that it was coming from us, everyone started making, you know, sounds, you know, to scare them away. The only money they took was what was left behind in the house. So that was a kind of like a hero that moment. <laughs> violence of the night out of her head to try to concentrate on school. But it was not easy. Just getting to school was a hardship. 
we had to walk to school miles and miles away, and we only had about 45 minutes uh, of break for lunch. We had to be at school by 7.30, and by noon, we will uh, go back home, and then we have 45 minutes, and it, imagine it takes about 45 minutes to walk to school, back and forth, and then we had to go back to school within that time limit. So it wasn't always that we, we will make it to school. Sometimes if we didn't take food with us, we would just go hungry but go back to school. And if you're late to school, you will get spanked. If you don't get the right answer, you get spanked. So I had no choice but to really go to school because I knew, especially watching my father, you know, he worked so hard and the education was what led him to be who he was. In the beginning, my grades were not as good, but I, I passed, you know, I will always get moved to a different level. It was hard to go to school knowing that all these fightings going on and just not having enough time to go home and eat and having to walk to school. Uh, it was really hard for, you know, for anyone really, for any kid to like stay focused, but I had to do what it takes. Fleeing to the Tanzanian refugee camp was the second time Divine's father had to flee to survive. During the first genocide in Burundi in 1972, he also had to make a run for it. He had learned that education and hard work was the only path to a better life. I think all the things that happened to him, especially having his parents being killed in front of him, he, all he wanted was to have a better, at least a bit, little bit better life for him, to also give back to the community. Even when we came here, the first thing that he would say was, I brought you guys here so you can have a better life. You saw me, how hard I worked, so I want you to have a better life and to have peace. When Divine turned 12, the family moved to the U.S., the refugee camp was closing, and there was too much danger still in Burundi to move back. In Portland, Oregon, where the family settled, Divine didn't have to walk miles to school or go hungry at lunch. But there were other horrors. My experience uh, coming here not knowing English, it was very hard. In middle school, I got really bullied. I remember my brothers and I, we would, when we first got here, I was so excited, like, yeah, I get to go to, to America and then I get to go to school. And then uh, when we got here, they showed us all these videos of kids going to the bus stop or happy. So I was like, oh, my gosh, I, get, I, get, I don't have to walk to go to school. You know, I was super excited. And my first day going to the bus stop, my brothers and I, we were talking in that language because obviously we couldn't speak English. So and then I noticed like kids were like kind of far distance from us or like they would like talk and just look us, you know, you, you, no matter what, even if you don't understand the language, you can tell when someone doesn't really like you. So I was like, I started telling my brothers, shh, don't talk, stop, don't talk. I think they don't like us talking. So, so that way we can make them feel a little bit more comfortable if we just don't talk. I remember I had to, you know, shush my little brothers not to talk. And until today, I hate it. I, I, I wish I did not do that. 
And then we went, uh, we will go to the bus, inside the bus, and no kid wanted to sit next to us. They will say, oh, they smell bad, or like, because we, we dressed differently, you know, we were used to dressing up African clothes. So I remember having to sit down at the back on the floor because no kid wanted to sit next to me. All my brothers, every time we would sit, try to sit, they would scoot over or something. Or sometimes the kids would, like, you know, hold their nose to, you know, showing that they would smell. That went on for quite some time, and no one wanted to speak to me. No one wanted to eat with me at, you know, the cafeteria. Um, I remember one time I got so mad, I was just feeling homesick, and I just went to the bathroom, and I just started eating there by myself in the bathroom. We had these two teenagers, uh, our neighbors. They were just so mean, so rude. I could not understand what they were saying, but I could write in my own language. So whatever I was hearing from what they were saying, I would always write down the way it sounded in my language. So I was able to... um, to learn what it is or uh, to even to say the word. One time I just went to my, my teacher, uh, my ESL teacher, and I was like, oh, I said the things they were saying because I was like, teacher, what does this mean? You know, and it's just like, whoa, did someone say this to you? Go back to Africa, you smell, why are you here kind of thing. Honestly, I hated going to school because I... I knew I was not happy. Kids were picking at me. But even though, like, I had to walk miles and miles away to go to school back home, I had my friends who treated me no different, you know. I, But then coming here, not knowing anyone, and being treated, like, so bad. And, you know, like, I came here hoping for a better education, you know, better place where I have peace, you know. When I came here, I hated during daytime, at nighttime, that's when I was happy because I was with my family, and that's when I... But back home, I hated during nighttime. I loved day, during daytime. When I was in a science class, I had a short hair and, like, was not combed, so I put, like, a hat on my head. Of course, back home in Africa, you're not allowed to have long hair. As a girl, you have to cut it off. No matter, It doesn't matter if you're a girl or, or not. So I was, like, growing my hair, starting to grow my hair, and, and everyone was just looking at me weird. My teacher told me to take off the hat, and I was like, but I couldn't really understand what she was saying. And I was like, Mm-mm. apparently you can't wear a hat in the middle school. So I got up, I ran, and I started crying because I was embarrassed about my hair because I was the only one who looked different. There was one uh, black girl. She was African-American. My teacher asked her to follow me behind, and she was like... She came to the bathroom, where, and I was just on the floor crying, and she's like, are you okay, Divine? I'm like... I didn't really understand what she was saying. And then she started braiding my hair, combing really nice, and that's when I I felt kind of accepted. Despite the bullying, Divine doubled down on her efforts to succeed in school, watching television for hours to learn English and looking at pictures and books to try to understand what the written content meant. And she even made a friend, another student who also didn't fit in with the cool girls. 
And I met this one girl who didn't walk. Uh, she was disabled. And she couldn't talk to me, but we connected so good. I couldn't speak English. Uh, she was the only person that came to me and connected with me. And she would share with me with her food. So I was really afraid. I'm like, why are you being so nice after, you know, all these years, other people t- treating me so wrong? Why? So we just became a really close friend. Divine soon formed a friend group, a posse of her own. Lunch buddies, secret keepers, story swappers, faces that she would miss after graduation. Because of them, they gave me conference to to talk because I was always quiet. My job was just maybe if you stay quiet, people will accept you. Because even in the beginning, how my brothers and I were talking our language and then did it. You really like that, so like, stay quiet, don't talk, you know? But having them like, whoa, I'm a friend with a white person? That's, that's crazy. Divine sacrificed her 2 a.m. senior year to writing college essays, applying to scholarships, and learning about college programs. She was thrilled to accept an impressive diversity scholarship to Western Oregon University, As she started to search for a major, Devine was surprised by the lack of support from faculty advisors. Once again, she relied on her instincts to rescue her. I love helping people. Um, I've always wanted to help people. That's all I've ever wanted to do in my life. And I still do. So I went to my advisor and I was like, I want to help people. I want to be a social worker. I want to and then she was like, well, here we have uh, psychology, we have sociology, and we have social studies. And I was like, okay, well, and she explained it to me what each of them can do. And I was like, sociology. So I, I decided to do sociology. And then she was like, are you sure you want to do sociology, not social studies? Uh, why are you doubting me? And she's like, you know, you're going to be doing a thesis paper you have to do, and it's really hard. Are you sure you wanted to do it? The fact that she doubted me, and I was like, you have no idea where I came from and how much I, you know, I worked hard to know the English I know today. The fact that she doubted me, I was like, you know what? That's it. This is this is what I want. I love challenging myself. Because I was living on campus, and I was the only person in the dorm that was black and from Africa and has an accent. So here I am thinking that, oh, we're all in college. We're all adults, you know. But no, there were some other people in my dorms that were just so mean to me. So my, on the door of my dorm, I had a, a whiteboard uh, just says like where I am or, you know, what I'm up to, the time I'll be back in. So every time I write something on the whiteboard, it will be erased and it will say something negative. Where there's people that kept knocking on the, on the window, calling me names, like we're using the N-word. It's sometimes I have like a positive message. I'm like, have a wonderful day uh, on the whiteboard. And then it would erase and say something really bad. Why are you here? Like, you're just here to take out education. I go back to Africa. Then I went to the housings. And that's when I talked to the person. I'm like, 
this is what's happening. These people are really picking up me, and I don't know what I ever did to them. And I've tried everything I can to put a stop to it. And, and now I'm coming to you guys. I've already tried the RA. I tried the manager of the RA. And now I'm coming to the housings to put a stop to it. Can you please? Like, I'm asking you. And then the person was like, whoa, divine, you know, not everyone is going to like you, no matter how kind you are. I'm like, I know that, but I don't deserve to, to be treated like this, especially if it's ongoing. Let me remind you, like, I have been bullied ever since I came to United States and coming to your college I was like oh I'm gonna be free you know like no more of, of being bullied but that was not the case and there was this African she's uh, African she's uh, also from Liberia she was working on the campus and she was the only African person that was working there I went to her office and started talking to her while, you know what's going on she understood me because she started talking to me about her story when she was going to college uh, how she got picked on and that she was like no this ends now I am going to do whatever it takes to put a stop to it and that's when she really helped me. Divine became a president, a founder, and an organizer. She led the International Students Club and started the African Students and Friends Association at her college. She maintained a strong work ethic and took on the responsibilities of a caregiver, working off campus to assist older people with disabilities. Divine never slowed, forging ahead with her studies, work, and organizations right up until she checked into a hospital. I was supposed to graduate 2017, but when I was getting ready to graduate, I ended up getting very, very sick to the point I was told that I only had 2% of surviving. So both of my kidneys were shutting down. I don't know why. They still don't know why, but they just decided to kind of give up. My kidneys were giving up on me. And then they did a biopsy, which they found out that I had a very thick blood. And so they ended up putting me on uh, blood thinner, which, you know, if you ha- you're on blood thinner, you, c- you bleed twice more than you would normally do. And so I ended up having internal bleeding, which I lost a lot of blood. You know, those uh, IV, like they use four or five packets of blood. That's how much I had lost. And then from there, I ended up having pneumonia. And from pneumonia, I ended up having, you know, when, that's when I was kind of like feeling a little better. I finally, you know, I was in the ICU room for about a month or so. And then, you know, it was one thing after another. And then so after I finally got out of the hospital thinking, yay, I'm, I'm saved. I went home and literally about a week after coming from hospital, I started having some symptoms similar to the pain I was having from my kidneys. So I was like, oh no, my kidneys are going back again. I had gallstones that they were so big that they could kill me at any time. Okay, how is this possible? I've done every test that exists at the hospital how did you miss these ghost stones? And I asked my doctor, do you get this amount of ghost stones in one day? It's like, oh, no. You probably had these ghost stones for at least five years. So you're telling me that all these pains that I was having while I'm in school, it was ghost stones? And they did a lot of tests on my gold brother, and they told me everything was normal. And I was like, you need surgery immediately. If you don't do your surgery now, you're, you're dead.
but her stomach pains never subsided, landing her back at the hospital with questions that went unanswered. Eventually, I was like, you know what? I am going to try to do my own ex experiment. I started going vegetarian, and then my stomach started kind of, you know, being okay, but still painful if I eat any fat food because, uh, you know, go brother holds the fat. So without the fat, everything either comes out or it starts to hurt. So I'm like, okay, so maybe, it's, you know, let me go vegan. And that's when I finally felt better ever since I have not been sick. After her six-month battle with her health, Divine returned to college, completed her thesis with an A-plus grade, and scored a job as a peer support specialist assisting the homeless population. Divine Arambana, named after her mother's promise that she be seen, brought visibility to the invisible in society. I think most people with my position, you have to kind of have some kind of experience of what you, you once in your lifetime, you, you experience hard times. For me, the gun shooting and stuff like that, and then I saw my friends go hungry most of the time. You know, I will go hungry sometimes too, especially when my parents are not home. It was just me and my sister. Like, I had that experience. You know, I, I understand how it feels, kind of understand how it feels to to be in a situation that's tough, you know, like going to bed at night and scared that I have that experience. It's also a very fulfilling job uh, because, one, sometimes I help someone get off the street and find a job and get them, you know, ID or birth certificates, you know, and that's every time I do such thing like that, it makes my day. <laughs> I believe that everyone deserves uh, peace. Everyone deserves, you know, a home. And, and the fact that I am where I am, if I can give back to the community, that's just enough. I look at my life, where I came from, all the struggles that I went through, losing my mom, being given away to someone else to nurse me, and the, the gun shootings, the violence that I faced while I was a kid. And then on top of that, coming here with nothing, leaving everything behind, and coming here and then being treated very bad. On top of that, being so sick, and yet I was able to still get up and continue doing my work. I do it because even when I was dying and catching my last breath, I literally just prayed. I said, God... I know this is not the last thing you want me to do here, and I know that I still have work to do, and the only thing I could think of was, you know, helping other people. Many Roads to Here is a production of The Immigrant Story in collaboration with Portland Radio Project. This episode was written by Deacon Larkin and Fran Silverman. Music was composed by Corey Larkin. Rick March edited the audio, assisted by Gordon Graham. The original interview was conducted in the spring of 2019 by Shea Siri. Our executive producer is the industrious Sankar Raman. You can also listen to our recent episode about Divine's sister, Jenny Munizero, by visiting theimmigrantstory.org. Listen to us at prp.fm or find us wherever you download your podcasts. <laughs>